Good afternoon, everybody. I want to thank you all for coming. I am uh, Peter Russo. I am the Director of Congressional Affairs at the Cato Institute. Uh, and I want to thank you all for coming. This is a Capitol Hill briefing entitled Cato in the Courts, a Wall Street edition. And this is our last Capitol Hill briefing of the year. But I do want to take a quick moment to thank our conference team. Mackenzie Johnson is there uh, and show some appreciation for all the hard work she's done for us on the Hill uh, and her team. So thank you, Mackenzie. Her team puts all this stuff together and makes sure there's food and rooms and everything else. So it's a valuable service. So thank you. Don't get me wrong, she is paid for it too, but I wanted to thank her. Um, so the landscape for financial sector reform seems to me to be very different uh, from what it could have been under a democratic presidency. Uh, when we put this program together, there was a vague assumption that not much could be changed or, nor improve. But the mood for deregulation seems to be at a fever pitch, at least among the offices I've been talking to. Um, so what will that mean given what appears to be a sharp change in direction given a Republican takeover of the executive? So to talk about all this, Cato's role at the Supreme Court and the prospects for some important cases in this sector, I brought um, financial services sector, I brought two particularly bright stars from Cato. First up will be uh, Ilya Shapiro, a senior fellow in, our, in constitutional studies and editor-in-chief of the Cato Supreme Court Review. Shapiro is the co-author of Religious Liberties for Corporations, Hobby Lobby, the Affordable Care Act, and the Constitution. He has contributed to a variety of academic, popular, and professional publications, including the Wall Street Journal, Harvard, law, Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy, National Affairs, and many others. He also regularly provides commentary for a variety of top national media outlets. Shapiro has testified before Congress and state legislatures and, as coordinator of Cato's amicus brief program, filed more than 200 friend-of-the-court briefs in the Supreme Court. He lectures regularly on behalf of the Federalist Society. He is a member of the Legal Study Institute's Board of Visitors at the Fund for American Studies, was an inaugural Washington Fellow at the National Review Institute, and a Lincoln Fellow at the Claremont Institute. And he has been an adjunct professor at the George Washington University Law School. In 2015, National Law Journal named him to its list of, 20, of 40 rising stars in the legal community. Shapiro holds an AB from Princeton University, a Master of Science from the London School of Economics, and a JD from the University of Chicago Law School, where he became a Tony Patino Fellow. Then uh, Thea Brook-Knight, she is an Associate Director of Financial Regulation Studies at the Cato. She is an attorney with extensive experience in securities regulation, small business, capital access, and capital markets. Following the recent financial crisis, she served as investigative counsel for the Congressional Oversight Panel, charged with overseeing the expenditure of troubled asset relief program funds. She also spent several years with the Washington office of the law firm Wilmer Hale, where her practice focused on securities litigation, securities enforcement defense, and corporate investigations. She holds a BA from Middlebury College and a JD from the University of Michigan Law School. So they'll each speak for about 20 minutes or so, and then we'll open it up to questions. So please welcome Ilya Shapiro. Thanks, Peter. Uh, it's great to be with you. Uh, when Thea asked me to be part of this presentation, talking about the uh, expansion of her department and its efforts in the courts, I said, great, uh, happy to do it, uh, but I don't know very much about financial regulation. I'm just a simple constitutional lawyer, so I'll talk more about um, uh, the role that amicus briefs play and, and what Cato has been doing in the courts generally, uh, and then how that meshes uh, into uh, legal issues uh, in the FinReg world. 
Um, Cato is actually one of the biggest and most effective uh, filers of amicus curiae briefs at the Supreme Court. Amicus curiae, for those of you who have forgotten your high school Latin, means friend of the court. Uh, and the plural is amici, if you're going for the classical Latin, or amici, if you want to keep that late modern uh, high uh, hard C. Uh, uh, so there you go. A little bit of linguistics for you. You weren't expecting that today. Uh, amicus briefs are filed by third parties. That is, Cato or, no, or, or any other uh, amicus filer doesn't have any clients before uh, any court. Um, uh, they file uh, based on their own interest, based on our, based on our own interest, uh, or to present some sort of information or arguments that uh, are not being presented by the parties who are litigating uh, the actual case. And of course, we try to uh, influence the court to make decisions in a particular way. In all of our briefs, uh, we try to maintain um, an unwavering commitment uh, to the principles of liberty and, and the original public meaning of the Constitution, textualism in terms of statutory interpretation. Uh, and and uh, obviously the parties we support uh, do that as well, uh, but we have the uh, luxury of, of more briefing space for uh, kind of highfalutin theory at the 30,000-foot level, not just the concrete nitty-gritty of what's going on in the facts uh, at hand. Um, amicus briefs at the Supreme Court can either be um, supporting a petition for a writ of certiorari, that is uh, asking the court for judicial review, because uh, the Supreme Court gets to decide which cases it wants to take, uh, or it can support one of the parties on the merits once the court has already taken uh, the case. And academic studies in the last decade have shown that amicus briefs were actually most effective at the cert petition stage. Uh, the court only takes fewer than 1% of petitions that are, that are brought to it, uh, but with every additional amicus brief up to about five, that increases uh, the chances. If you have five amicus briefs supporting your petition, then you have about a 22% chance of a grant, which is still obviously not great, uh, but much better than uh, 1%. Um, Cato's winning percentage on the merits has generally been uh, pretty good and most importantly consistently beats the federal government, uh, which we consider to be our uh, biggest competition. Uh, and more importantly, cases in which Cato has filed a brief supporting cert, getting the court to take the case, um, uh, are granted review orders of magnitude more than the average one. That's gone down actually in the last couple of years. In general, the court has been doing a very good job of putting itself out of business uh, regardless of whether it has nine or eight members. Um, you know, this, this term so far, we're on pace for about 60 cases. 20 years ago, they were deciding 150 a year. So it's a very uh, pronounced downward trend, even as the number of cert petitions uh, increase. But anyway, uh, having Cato file on your side seems to have uh, become part of the, uh, the handbook for uh, successful uh, Supreme Court advocacy. We get queries all the time, and I always like it when there are cases where both sides try to get us to file in support of them. That's usually a very good signal to me that we shouldn't file in the case at all, because if you can make a plausible argument that uh, Cato or a libertarian perspective can be found on both sides, then really it's not uh, a strong interest for us in the first place, because we don't file just in run-of-the-mill cases or just whatever someone thinks the quote-unquote big cases of the term are. Uh, we file where there's a clear uh, libertarian or originalist perspective to be had, and in cases that are uh, important, uh, not you know minor 
uh, error correction or certain subparts of the bankruptcy code or what have you, although maybe Thea will start filing in, in those uh, you know, subparts of uh, uh, statutes that uh, I'd never even heard of. Um, in recent years, amicus filings in general have exploded, and there's an, uh, the academic literature about amicus filings has exploded as well. Um, for example, the constitutional challenge to the Affordable Care Act, NFIB versus Sebelius, four years ago drew 136 amicus briefs. That was easily a record, although a record that would be broken just three years later in Obergefell versus Hodges, the same-sex marriage case that drew 149 amicus briefs. Um, in that Obamacare litigation, Cato for the first time filed a brief at every level of, of litigation, not just before the Supreme Court. Uh, we had occasionally been filing in the circuit courts of appeal, but there we even filed uh, in the district court, and we took the lead in coordinating all of the amici uh, uh, at the Supreme Court level to hit Obamacare from all sides. Now, in the, in the financial regulatory world, we, we have filed briefs uh, over the years, uh, most notably uh, challenging the uh, different parts of the, of the big pieces of legislation, Sarbanes-Oxley uh, and Dodd-Frank. Sarbanes-Oxley had a, a really colorful case a, a few years ago, actually. This was the, um, uh, the, the, the fish tale. I don't know if you've heard about this, the fisherman's tale. This, this um, uh, gentleman in the, in the Gulf Coast of Florida uh, was uh, given a citation by the Fish and Wildlife Service for catching undersized grouper. You know, just a little too small. Um, but by the time he got back to shore, there was no more evidence of said uh, undersized grouper. Uh, presumably he had thrown it overboard. But since there was no more evidence, not only was his fine under the uh, relevant fish and wildlife uh, code, state or federal, enhanced, but he was prosecuted by the federal government for violating Sarbanes-Oxley. Because, of course, a fish is a, uh, an important piece of, of evidence uh, that uh, when you throw it away is, uh, you know, destroys evidence of, of fraud and, and things like that. Anyway, the Supreme Court uh, throughout his conviction as, as beyond uh, the scope of, of Sarbanes-Oxley, so at least there's that. And with Dodd-Frank, there's a whole lot of structural problems. Uh, there is with, 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 with Sarbanes-Oxley as well. We were part of a case called uh, the Public, Counting, uh, Public Company Accounting Oversight Board versus Free Enterprise Fund. But with Dodd-Frank, uh, there's even more of that, starting with the illegal recess appointments to the Unconstitutional Consumer Financial Protection Bureau uh, and the Financial Stability Oversight Council. Um, which, uh, you know, uh, were formed as the uh, fifth or sixth or seventh. I forget how many branches of government we're up to at this point. But in any event, they, they serve as uh, sheriff and prosecutor and judge, jury and executioner. Uh, a clearer violation of the separation of powers uh, can't, uh, can't really be had. And, and there's more now, as they will go into uh, this term's cases. And as I said, amicus briefs serve a host of purposes. Uh, they do not, at least for Cato, serve as, uh, look at us, uh, we're really important, um, this, you know, what, the arguments we make aren't important, but look, we file a Supreme Court brief. Plenty of organizations do that, and then they show their donors how big and important they are. We, thankfully, uh, don't need to do that, but we try to inform the justices about um, uh, things that they won't otherwise get. Uh, other good types of good amicus briefs uh, include economic, historical, scientific data, uh, biological data, uh, if the healthcare types of cases, the regulatory cases that involve 
uh, uh, difficult aspects of pharmacology or what have you, that's typically not going to be presented uh, by the parties, but can be very helpful for the, for the court rather than the umpteenth brief uh, uh, that has an exegesis on the Commerce Clause or, or what have you. Uh, for a case dealing with uh, banking regulations, for example, for relevant example to our, our discussion today, it can be helpful uh, for those who are more familiar with banking practices to tell the court how uh, particular regulatory changes will work uh, on the ground. Uh, and some amicus briefs, as I said, aren't simply vacuous, but they're, they're me too briefs. They repeat what the party is already saying. We try to uh, avoid those. We work diligently to make sure uh, that uh, what we uh, give the court is fresh and new um, and also can serve kind of a, uh, uh, a goal-setting purpose or an anchoring uh, purpose. If the parties are arguing here and Cato uh, puts the, uh, the clearest, most originalist libertarian position here, well, that makes the party that we're supporting look like the reasonable position. And so, so they like that. They actually encourage us sometimes to, you know, go fly our crazy libertarian freak flag as, as, as much as we can because that helps them look, uh, as I said, as the, as the reasonable position. Um, let's see. Um, in 2013, uh, we were the only uh, organization to have filed in the big 5-4 cases decided that term. Shelby County on voting rights, Fisher on uh, affirmative action, and Windsor on the Defense of Marriage Act. In 2014, we were the only organization to file on the winning side of those, uh, the biggest cases that term, campaign finance with McCutcheon, Hobby Lobby with religious liberty, uh, and Harris versus Quinn on labor law. And in 2015, we were the only organization to file uh, a challenge to uh, Obamacare statutory interpretation in King v. Burwell, as well as to state marriage laws uh, in Obergefell. So we provide a unique perspective. Last year, we filed uh, 57 uh, briefs. Uh, this year, we're on track for, I think, 62 or 63. Luckily, I don't have to write them all myself. In fact, luckily, we don't have to do them all in-house. We do about 30% of them in-house. The rest are split between joining other organizations and getting big firms uh, to do them uh, for us pro bono. Pro bono is a fancy word that means for free. Um, and uh, we enjoy a good relationship with the uh, bar of the big DC and, and uh, other city uh, law firms. Now, annual statistics aside, uh, last term confirmed a very real phenomenon that at the end of the Obama presidency, we can safely declare that this administration has done exceedingly poorly before the Supreme Court. Uh, while this may seem counterintuitive, given the recent liberal victories on abortion and affirmative action, let alone the two Obamacare cases from previous terms, uh, the statistics are staggering. Uh, last term, the government went 13 and 14. Uh, Cato went 4 and 4, by the way, uh, which is our worst record in recent memory, but still good enough to beat the government. Um, but this mediocrity, again, seems surprising, except that 48% win rate is actually the administration's third best uh, result. Um, overall, the administration has a record of 79 and 96, which is a win rate of just above 45%. Um, and we can essentially audit um, the 44th president's uh, judicial books now. There are a handful of cases where the government's involved this fall where we'll see a decision uh, before the next president is inaugurated, but essentially the statistic uh, is there, and the audit doesn't look good when compared to the record of his predecessors. George W. Bush achieved a record of 60% uh, wins. Uh, Bill Clinton had 63%. George H.W. Bush, 70%. 
Reagan uh, about 75 percent. Now that looks like it's just merely a tale of a, a downward trend for the executive, uh, but Jimmy Carter was lower than Reagan and it kind of goes up and down. It's, uh, indeed, the, the overall government win rate over the last 50 years, or 52 years, I think I didn't have uh, my intern go back farther than that, uh, is comfortably over 60 percent. Um, again, Obama's about 45. Now, this isn't exact science, uh, with some judgment calls about what counts as a win and a loss uh, in, in various cases. Uh, and as I said, the court used to hear a lot more cases. Uh, so the last 20 years or so are less statistically significant for those of you being picky. Um, but even giving Obama every benefit of the doubt, his 45 percent score falls far short of the modern norm, which is uh, really the relevant period, uh, regardless of how poorly uh, Andrew Jackson or Benjamin Harrison uh, may have done. Uh, you could argue, of course, that a simple one-loss one rate doesn't tell the whole story. After all, Obama's lawyers have faced a majority of Republican appointees uh, on the Supreme Court, as did Clinton's, of course, uh, but that didn't stop him from pipping his Republican successor. Uh, but never mind, the news gets even worse when you just look at unanimous losses. Last term, the federal government argued an incredible 10 cases without gaining a single vote, not even from the justices that Obama himself uh, appointed. Uh, and that brings his total to 44 unanimous losses. In comparison, George W. Bush had 30 and Clinton had 31. And so in other words, Obama lost unanimously 50% again more times than his two predecessors. And these cases have been in such disparate areas as criminal procedure, tax law, religious liberty, property rights, immigration, and yes, securities regulation. The government's arguments across this variety of cases would essentially allow the executive branch to do whatever it wants without meaningful uh, constitutional restraint. And this position conflicts with another unanimous decision that the government lost, Bond versus United States, uh, which vindicated a criminal defendant's right to challenge her federal prosecution. Look up that case. There's kind of a, a precursor to Yates, uh, another one of these federal overreaching cases involving uh, adultery, uh, federalism and chemical weapons, one of those run-of-the-mill ones. As Justice Kennedy wrote, quote, federalism protects the liberty of the individual from arbitrary power. When the government acts in excess of its lawful powers, that liberty is uh, at stake. Bond actually returned to the court uh, a few years after, after that uh, case, uh, and again, the government lost uh, unanimously. The issue there was whether a weapons trafficking statute uh, could be applied to the use of household chemicals in a bizarre revenge plot. Again, re read about this case. Bond is that. I think, I think after that case, they transferred that prosecutor down to Florida's Gulf Coast to go after Yates. Uh, um, now, I'm not saying that the government's lawyers are subpar. Uh, Solicitor General uh, Don Verrilli, who uh, recently uh, uh, went back into private practice, uh, and his predecessors, including Elena Kagan, now a justice, of course, are very well respected. And their staffs are people uh, who did very well in law school and clerked for the Supreme Court. I mean, you know, better record than, than, than me, certainly. If, if they're not qualified to represent the government, then nobody is. Uh, no, what's really going on here is akin to what Miguel Estrada, leading Supreme Court advocate, uh, put it, uh, how he put it a few years ago, uh, when asked to opine on the administration's uh, abysmal record. Quote, when you have a crazy client who makes you take crazy positions, you're going to lose some cases. And so the reason that this president has done so poorly is because he sees few limits on federal and especially prosecutorial authority uh, and assumes the power to enact his agenda when Congress refuses to do so. Now, 
Um, if you get out your pocket constitution, uh, the Cato, this is the Cato one, it's a twofer. You buy the constitution, you get the declaration for free. Although this is a special limited edition Shapiro wedding constitution. Uh, my wife's in the back row there. Here are our names and the, the date. She's a very tolerant lady. Um, anyway, uh, my constitution does not have a when Congress doesn't act, the president gets more power clause, the gridlock clause, right? Um, not, no matter how many, you know, how you shade it and where the penumbras lie, I, I, it's just, I can't find it. Um, but anyway, the, the numbers uh, of this administration before the court don't lie. And if the next president wants to improve on the government's record, uh, whether in financial regulation or otherwise, then I humbly suggest that he follow Cato's lead, advocating positions and taking executive actions that are actually grounded in law and enforce the uh, Constitution's role in securing and protecting our liberty. Thank you. Thank everybody for being here on a Friday. I know that uh, financial regulation in the courts might not be the most stimulating topic for the end of the week, um, so it's good to see you. Um, so what I want to talk about is uh, sort of do, I don't want to say a deep dive because I don't think we have time for that, but get into the details of the four cases that my center filed in um, this year and also just talk more broadly about um, the amicus program within um, our center. So um, ours, oh, here's my first slide, okay. <laughs> Um, so our center is. By the, the way, I dissent. I think PowerPoint's unconstitutional. <laughs> um, our center is the Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. Um, we're a fairly new center. We were established just in 2014, and I'm the only lawyer right now in the center. Um, I have my colleagues are economists, um, so we focus on. Uh, you know, we have some monetary economists. We have some people who also do some work on other parts of financial regulation. Um, what we're looking for is alternatives to the current status quo um, in terms of how we approach economic regulation overall so that we can bring um, more prosperity and more stability because um, everybody nowadays is very interested in stability um, and we tend to think that a lot of the attempts through regulation to improve stability have actually done the opposite. Um, and the case is that the reason that I started this amicus program this past summer um, is one, I'm a lawyer, and you know I, I like to wind up in court. You know, I'm a litigator by training, um, but also because the judiciary is the counter-majoritarian branch of the government, and I think that in the years since the financial crisis, the financial sector has come under a lot of scrutiny, and whether you believe that that's deserved or not one of the foundational principles of our country is that due process should be available even to the really unpopular people. So no matter how unpopular um, the financial sector is right now, they still should be getting due process um, because that's one of our foundational uh, principles and beliefs. Um, so that's why we started filing some of these cases. Also, just the way sort of law and regulation works, we're at the point where a lot of provisions of Dodd-Frank They've had their implementing uh, regulations. They've actually been in operation for a little while. We're starting to see lawsuits coming out of these regulations that are making their way through the court. So just sort of from a timeline um, perspective, the courts are where a lot of the action is right now. Um, so the cases that I want to talk about, um, unfortunately, this is so that I can't actually see. Oh, we have 
I can't see my slides. Yeah. Do I block you? Am I blocking? Okay, there we go. Yay, I can actually see this. Um, so we filed in two uh, cases in the Supreme Court, Salmon v. U.S. and B of A v. Miami, um, and also two in the D.C. Circuit, Timbervest v. SEC and MetLife v. Uh, FSOC, Financial Stability Oversight Council. Um, so we're just going to run through these so to get a sense of why these are important, what the issues are um, that these present, and sort of what issues these tee up going forward. Um, so starting with Timbervest, we chose this case not because this particular case is really exceptional, but because it's representative of a number of cases that have been making their way through the courts uh, lately. So this is a case involving somebody who was brought uh, before the SEC's in-house administrative hearing process. Um, a lot of agencies have uh, what we call ALJs, administrative law judges. The vast majority, overwhelming majority of ALJs, like 1,100 of them, um, work in the Social Security Administration. Um, but also, agencies like the SEC have some ALJs in-house and do some of these administrative hearings in-house. And these are fundamentally different from what the uh, Social Security Administration does. So Social Security Administration, you have people coming to the government asking for benefits and the ALJs are making determinations about whether the government should give things to these people. Um, what the SEC does and uh, some of the other agencies, this is a bit small but I think you might have copies of this, um, it has the, the, um, the ALJs are more prosecutorial in some ways. They're supposed to be administering an uh, impartial, you know, uh, hearing. But what you have is in-house, you have the uh, executive function in terms of the commission's ability to do rulemaking. Um, I'm sorry, the, the legislative function, the executive function in terms of choosing which cases to pursue enforcement act with enforcement actions, and then the judicial function, which is actually determining the outcome of the cases. And in a lot of these cases, including Timbervest, there's concurrent jurisdiction between the Article III courts and the ALJ. So the SEC has the decision, they have the ability to decide, are we gonna bring this in-house, or are we gonna bring this before a judge? Um, the defendant does not have that choice. They have to go before whichever, uh, you know, whether it's in-house or in a court that the SEC decides. Um, so as a comparison, this is what it looks like in your typical case. You know, you have law enforcement, they see some sort of wrongdoing, they bring it to the prosecutor's office, the prosecutor decides whether they're going to move forward with the case, it goes to a trial court, um, and then the appeal goes up to the appeal court. Um, this is what it looks like in the SEC. Uh, it's the SEC enforcement who sees some wrongdoing, it's the SEC commissioners who decide whether their case should be brought, it's the SEC ALJs who decide um, the case, and then the first level of appeal is back to the SEC commissioners who decided that a case should be brought in the first place. It's only after that appeal that the defendant has the opportunity to appeal to an Article III court, to the circuit court. Um, so without impugning the actual integrity of any individual involved, this obviously just sets up a conflict of interest. You can just kind of see the um, sort of incestuous nature of this whole process. Um, and there's also uh, another problem in terms of incentives, which is that uh, government enforcement agencies look good when they have a lot of enforcement actions. And there's just something inherently improper about having the agency that's bringing the case 
and gets to tout, you know, all of these enforcement actions also be the agency that's making the determination. So we filed in Timbervest because this is one of a number of cases that is challenging this structure. Um, and the authority of the ALJs within the SEC was expanded under Dodd-Frank. So there's also this other part that not only has this been problematic all along, but the power of the ALJs has been expanded. Um, so moving along to our other case in uh, D.C. Circuit, MetLife v. FSOC. This is a case that's going to get a lot of attention, I think. Um, you may be aware that the Dodd-Frank um, created the Financial Stability Oversight Council to the heads of several financial regulators. One of their, um, one of the kinds of authority that they were given through Dodd-Frank is the ability to designate certain institutions as systemically important financial institutions, or SIFIs. Um, there are bank SIFIs, but there are also non-bank SIFIs. And MetLife is obviously an insurance company. It is a non-bank SIFI. And the process for designating a company as a SIFI has been notoriously black box. Um, where a lot of the companies have complained they have no idea what the grounds are for becoming a SIFI, and that means that they have no idea what the grounds are for becoming a not SIFI. You know, how do you, how do you get de-designated? Um, what we've seen so far is that if a company breaks itself up, um, we saw this with GE Capital, it can get de-designated, but uh, G GE Capital is kind of unique. It had the ability to spin off a lot of business units, and it has GE standing behind it. Um, so it's kind of a diff in a different position. So. MetLife brought this case challenging its designation as a SIFI, um, and in the trial court, the court found for MetLife. And uh, the judge found on two grounds. One was that FSOC had actually issued guidance and had not followed its own guidance. Um, and then the other point was that, and this is important because I think there's a nuance here that's been missed in the way this has been reported. So it's been said, Judge Collier said there needs to be cost-benefit analysis in rulemaking. This is not what Judge Collier actually said. What she said is that a regulator in issuing a rule needs to support the intention of the, uh, of the legislation. And in the case of SIFI designation, in the case of Dodd-Frank, the goal is financial stability. So you have to ask the question, will SIFI designation increase or decrease MetLife's stability? So that's where you get that cost benefit, where is this going to increase the costs to MetLife to the point that it risks its stability. But the reason that this is um, that this is appropriate, even though this legislation does not say you have to do a cost-benefit analysis, is because the purpose of the Dodd-Frank legislation is stability. Um, and so if the regulation is going to decrease stability, you have to at least consider that. Um, so this case, we've had um, argument in this case. We're still waiting for an opinion to come down um, in that one. So moving on to the... And this is a really quick overview. I realize we're kind of flying through these cases, but there's a lot to get through. Um, so Bank of America v. Miami is one of the cases in the Supreme Court. Um, this is actually a fair housing case, um, which is what makes it kind of uh, unique. So Miami, um, along with a lot of other municipalities, has come up with this very novel legal theory, which is that um, under the Fair Housing Act, they can sue banks for discriminatory lending process. So the argument is uh, Wells Fargo and Bank of America were discriminatory in their housing lending. And the result is that a lot of minority home buyers got loans they couldn't afford. They defaulted on the loans. There's now urban blight, foreclosure, um, increased policing requirements because of the empty housing, et cetera. 
But the claim that they've made is not that the city is less diverse and therefore has a harm or anything like that. The argument is purely about money. So the Fair Housing Act says that an aggrieved person can bring a suit. And this is important because we, when we talk about, um, when we interpret statutes, we say when Congress says a word, they mean the word. You can't interpret a statute in a way that that word just kind of is worthless. So there is some case law that says aggrieved person means any person who is hurt. Well, that would, that kind of violates the way we tend to interpret statutes, because then why would you need to say aggrieved person? Why don't you just say somebody who has a claim? Um, and in the past, aggrieved person has been interpreted fairly broadly, but always with this sort of underlying racial discrimination piece. So for example, neighbors were able to bring a case saying, um, we were hurt because we don't have the diverse neighborhood that we could have otherwise had. So if you don't rent units to people of different races, we miss out on the inherent benefit of having a diverse neighborhood. Um, the city of Miami has only argued that they're out money. So they've said, we have a smaller tax base, uh, we've had to spend more money in policing, but they haven't said that they have any sort of discriminatory harm. Um, and I think this is gonna be a real challenge for the court to rule in Miami's favor in this case because they would have to be able to articulate a rule that would allow Miami to recover for purely monetary damages but not enable every other business that suffered to also recover. So this is one of the questions that one of the justices asked at oral argument is, why can't the lawn guy recover under this theory? So somebody who has you know, a lawn service business, somebody who has a grocery store, somebody who has a hairdresser, um, if there are fewer people in the neighborhood, you have less business. Aren't they harmed as well? So under this theory, couldn't they also bring a case? And Miami said no, but it, they really couldn't articulate a good rule. So if the court wants to find for Miami in this case, they are going to have to articulate a rule that brings Miami in but excludes the lawn guy. Um, and I don't know what that rule looks like. Um, from a policy perspective, and this is one of the points that we raised in our brief as well, um, there's this, an accountability that comes from a municipality having to ask its taxpayers for money to do things. And if the banks, or if the city is able to just bypass that and get money from these deep pockets, um, these banks, that cuts short that accountability so that the city can go and do all of these projects without actually having to get its people to pay for them. Um, and Miami is not the only city that has brought this kind of lawsuit. There are a lot of, there are several municipalities who have come up with this theory. They've engaged plaintiff's attorneys who work on a contingency basis, which means it's essentially free to the municipality to bring these court, these cases. Um, the lawyers only get paid if they recover money. Um, so if they win, the lawyers get paid and the cities get money that they can do things with without having to go to their people. Um, so while that's not a legal issue, this is the kind of policy issue that we can bring up in our briefs that the parties obviously couldn't argue. Um, and that brings us to Solomon, and I left this for last because we actually have an opinion. In this case, it came down on, I think, Tuesday. This is the first insider trading case that the court has heard in 20 years. Um, so this is a great opportunity for the court to bring some clarity to this area of law. Um, it's notoriously murky in large part because it's not actually statutory. Um, there is no statute that prohibits insider trading. There's a statute that prohibits deceptive practices with respect to a purchase or sale of a security. 
And over the years, the courts have interpreted insider trading, that is, uh, somebody who is an insider in the company using non-public information to trade, to be a deceptive practice under this statute. But because it's the law is entirely judge-made, every one of these opinions is incredibly important because we have no statute to go back to to figure out what it meant. There's no, you know, there's no congressional record. There's no debate um, among, you know, senators or representatives about what insider trading is. Um, and unfortunately, what the court did was it took it made a really narrow holding that gives us. A, almost no new information in this. So just to go quickly over what happened, um, these are examples of different models that are insider trading. The top one, really basic. Some executive has information, trades on it, gets money, clearly insider trading. That's very well established um, in case law. Next one, the insider says, hey, friend, Tippy, um, I can't trade on this, but you trade on this and give me the money. Clearly, that has to be illegal if we actually want to have um, a law against insider trading. Um, if the tippy, the outsider, gives the insider something of value, um, you know, the insider says, hey, I can give you this money, you can make a lot of money off, I give you this information, you can make a lot of money off of it, but in exchange, buy me a nice car, or in exchange, let me into your super exclusive club, insider trading. Um, what this addressed was what happens if there's nothing flowing from the tippy back to the insider. If the insider just says, here's some information, the outside person goes and trades on it, insider trading. Um, and to understand why somebody would do that, you have to understand these were family members. Um, so the insider was a man named Maher. He gave information to his brother, Michael. Michael traded on it, also shared the information with their brother-in-law, Salman, um, who also traded on it and made money. Um, so we filed on behalf of Salman. Unfortunately, we lost. Um, and, but the court, in ruling on this, did not give any additional information um, about why insider trading should be illegal. And there's actually a pretty lively debate in the academic literature about this, um, about why we need to, you know, why do we have to have a law against insider trading at all? Um, the court didn't get into that, didn't explain why this, why they ruled the way they did, but just said we have this earl earlier case, Dirks, that says that probably if it's a gift. Um, if you make a gift of insider inside information, it's insider trading. Under Dirks, we're going to find that this is insider trading. Um, it's a very short opinion. I think it's about 13 pages. So they really don't go into any depth on this at all. I think that was intentional. Um, so we're left with this question of why is insider trading illegal? The major arguments are it's unfair for some people to have uh, better information. Other argument is it's theft of the company information. These make sense in some ways, except they've been really inconsistently um, applied. So you find the courts have consistently preserved the ability to trade on non-public information as long as it didn't come from an insider. Um, and as long as it didn't come from an insider intentionally. You're in an elevator with a couple of executives and they're talking about some merger and you say, oh, God, that's the AB merger. I'm going to go trade on that. That's legal. Now, you had access to non-public material information. You have an advantage over everybody else in the market. The person on the other side of that trade doesn't have the information you have. That could be unfair, but the courts have expressly said, no, that's fine. Um, the other argument, it's theft. Well, it's only illegal if you use the information for trading and not for other non-corporate purposes. So um, in the Salman case, one of the examples of the um, insider disclosing information is he worked in the uh, healthcare part of Citigroup and his brother 
who's a chemist, has a degree in chemistry. He disclosed some information to his brother so that they could talk about possible treatment options for their father who was dying of cancer. Now, totally non-corporate disclosure of information. Sympathetic, but non-corporate. Um, this was totally outside of Maher's responsibilities to his employer, Citigroup, and yet the court hinted that that disclosure did not trigger insider trading liability. And you say, well, yeah, there's no trading, but if our concern is that you're you're stealing from the company, it shouldn't matter what you do with the information after you steal it. So for example, if uh, Maher went down to CVS and broke in and stole a bunch of cancer drugs, we would say, well, we feel bad for your father, but you can't go steal cancer drugs. Um, and yet we don't make this, you know, we say that for insider trading, there has to be a connection to trading. I'll get you in one second. Um, so we still have this question about why do we have insider trading um, law at all. There are arguments on both sides, but unfortunately the Solomon case does not give us any greater clarity in this area.